Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from Scripture will inspire and encourage you. In this episode, we explore whether the thousand-year reign described in chapter 20 of Revelation is literal or metaphorical. During this millennium, the dragon and accuser Satan is thrown into the pit of damnation, ushering in a new age. These thousand years are an important time for those who will reign, the martyrs, apostles, and followers of Jesus, all who have lived a life of faithfulness. So today we approach chapter 20 in Revelation. We have seen that Revelation is a very simple book with a very simple message if you approach it in the way it's written. If you come to Revelation wanting to know what's going to happen, there's no simplicity at all. But that's not what it's written for. It gives us some inkling about what's going to happen, but for a purpose. It's a very simple book. It wants us to read, hear, or understand, and do. And what it wants us to read and understand is what's written here. And what's written here has two predominant messages, two predominant takeaways. One is, no matter what happens, no matter how crazy things look, God is where? On His throne. Nothing happens that's not authorized from this throne. Nothing. God's always there. That does not change, no matter how crazy things seem. You know, it seems that some of my friends from past that I've been reconnecting with are running into some of our other friends that were really devout, walking believers during their college days and have since said, I don't want anything to do with God. And that's not that unusual to run across people that have decided, you know, I'm an atheist. And what seems to be the underlying cause of atheism is not intellectual disbelief. It's that God disappointed them somehow. Things didn't work out like I was entitled for them to work out. And so I'm going to get God back by not believing in him. That seems to be pretty common. And what's missing there is the idea that things are supposed to work out a certain way according to the way I want it to. All of us would prefer that until it happens that way. And then we say, God, why did you let that happen? Because we just don't know. We don't know what's in our best interest. And God does. And we've seen everything that happens in here authorized from the throne. The word throne shows up 41 times in Revelation. And we're going to see it again today. Throne, throne, throne. And this the game of thrones that we're looking at Includes all of us, if we are the faithful ones. And again, we're going to see that today. So that's the first big takeaway. The second one is, God wants us to do something. And the something is very simple. Be a faithful witness. Do not fear death. Any kind of death. Rejection. Difficulty. Fiery trials. Don't fear those things. Just be a faithful witness. Do what I give you to do, and don't stop doing that all the way to the end. And that's Revelation. It's very simple. So let's start in chapter 20, because we're seeing see the culmination of all things. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So we see this angel coming down with a chain in his hand. And this kind of reminds me of watching a cowboy rope a cow. We've got some cows on our ranch, and some of them are kind of crazy. We had had these three cows get loose for like a month. We couldn't find them on the place for a month. 
And finally, one day we saw one of them. I happened to be with the cowboy. So we went and grabbed some horses and started running after them. And I watched this cowboy rope this cow and drag him for a long distance. And that's kind of the image that has, comes in my mind here. You got this angel come down and say, come here, you old snake. Give me, get, hey, get over here. Grab this chain, drag him into the, to the door, throw him in, shut the door, and then seal it up. That seems to be kind of the picture that we have here. Now, this bottomless pit has been opened once before. Let's look at it real quick. It's back in Revelation 9. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, uh, Then the fifth angel sounded, that was the fifth trumpet, and I saw a star falling from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit and smoke came out. So in this particular case, this looks like a fallen angel that's given the key to the pit. And he's letting these uh, demonic forces out that are something like locusts and go and plague the earth. So it's interesting that in one case there's a fallen angel opening the bottomless pit. And in this other instance, we have one of the good angels opening the bottomless pit and putting something in. And the thing that he's put in is actually... Satan. It's interesting this word dragon is in Greek the word drakon, D-R-A-K-O-N. And it's a word that shows up in Revelation only in the New Testament. But in the LXX, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it shows up quite often when Moses throws his rod down and it becomes a snake. It's the same word in the LXX. Now, this term devil and Satan, we've seen these terms before. Satan is a transliteration of this Old Testament Hebrew word, shatan, which just means accuser. In fact, the word shatan shows up eight times in the Old Testament before it's translated Satan, and each time it's just accuser or accusation, depending on the form of the word. But this Devil is the Greek word diablos, and most of the time in the New Testament it's translated devil, but there's one instance where it's not. Let's look at it, 1 Timothy 3, verse 11. 1 Timothy 3, verse 11, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not diablos. And the word is translated in your Bible probably slanderer or gossiper, accuser. So Satan likes accusation. And he likes slander, selective information in order to bring down your character. That's one of Satan's key uh, orientations. So, is that what? Yeah, well, I was just going to say, you know, you remember in chapter uh, 2, I think it was, Pergamos, it says, and Satan's throne is there. And Pergamos was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. And Satan is still the prince of this world. And so when you see campaigns... Yeah, the, Satan's present there, and always has been. First John 2 takes on some real meaning here because we have this slandering accuser. And look at First John 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. First John's written to believers, and the point of First John is don't sin, and here's what you do if you do. Uh, because there were these Gnostics going in saying sin doesn't really matter. That's just something you do in your body. Your spirit is all that matters. And he was countering this. No sin matters a lot. And if anyone does sin, so I don't want you to sin, but if you do, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. So we have this accuser standing before God, accusing us day and night, and we have Jesus there taken up for us. And that's a really cool picture. 
But it's not a picture that says, oh good, now I don't have to do anything. It's a picture that says, Jesus is there, and no matter what we do, we have him to keep us as a child. But there's these massive consequences to the choices we make. And so let's make good choices. So he binds him for a thousand years and puts him in this bottomless pit, shuts him up, sets a seal on it. And this seal is the idea of, a, of an authority. You know, they seal Jesus' tomb. And the idea is if anybody breaks this seal, there's a penalty to pay. Because the authority said, nobody opens this up without my permission. And once again, we see here that the throne is emanating the power. Nothing happens without permission from the throne all the way through this. And what is disallowed now is deception. And Satan is not going to be allowed to deceive the nations. And something very remarkable is going to happen as a result of not deceiving the nations. The world is going to be almost perfect for a thousand years. And he stays in this bottomless pit until this thousand years is finished. Does anybody remember the finished word? The Greek word that's finished or completed? Yeah, that's right. The teleo, the telescope word. To see something that, okay, there's the end of my sight. Finished, completed. Which gives very clear indication that this thousand years is not a figurative term. It is an actual period of time. It's a thousand years. And the thousand years is going to start and the thousand years is going to end. Which once again goes back to the throne. All this is timed out. It's on a calendar. Do any of you keep a day timer or an outlook or something like that? That Somebody asks you, are you available on November 15th? And you say, just a minute, and you go look and say what you've prescribed is going to happen on November 15th, even though you don't know if you're going to be alive on November 15th, really, or if the earth's going to be here still on November 15th. But we plan anyway, right? We plan and then say, if the Lord wills. But in God's case, he has an outlook, and it's already, and it's going to happen. And it's on there. And this thousand years has a start and it has an end. Which brings a real interesting question. When is the start? Now, let me show you a couple things here that are very fascinating. Look at Revelation 12, 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. They should feed her for 1,260 days. This is the three and a half year period we've seen over and over again. And there are many other references to three and a half years. And it's 1,260 days. That's a pretty precise term. Don't you think? And that's how long that Israel is going to have to hide because there's this persecution, this great tribulation, this massive persecution of believers and destruction on the earth. That's 1,260 days. But look at Daniel 12, verse 11. Now we know that we're in this 70th week of Daniel, this 70th seven-year period. And this abomination of desolations in the middle of that seven-year period is what starts the Great Tribulation, this 1,260 days, this three-and-a-half-year period. And then we know that from Daniel. So in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 11, it says, And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up. So that tells us two things. One is that there is this abomination of desolation that is a starting point. And, and again, we saw that in, uh, earlier in Daniel as well. And that associated with the abomination of desolation is this taking away a sacrifice, which tells us there is what? A temple. Yeah, there's sacrifice, so there's a temple. The temple's been reconstructed. 
So from that time, there shall be 1,290 days. So there's 30 days not accounted for. 1,260 days, Israel flees into the wilderness. So there's 30 days either on the front or the back of that where something else happens. And then it's verse 12, it says, Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So you add another 45 days and something else momentous happens. Now, I have no idea what that is. I don't know if the 30 days is on the front or the end. I don't know what happens in those 30 days or those 45 days. I'm sure there's things that you could piece in here and try to figure out what that is. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is God has all this programmed out. It's real specific. And on that day, something really amazing is going to happen. On that day. And you can only have that be the case if what? God's on the throne. You can only have that be the case if God is in control of history. And that's one of the huge takeaways from Revelation. No matter how crazy things look, God is in control. He's on his throne. He is in charge of history. But Satan is going to be in their bottomless pit for a thousand years, and then he's going to be released for a little while, which is really odd. But that's what's going to happen. So let's go to verse 4 of chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. thousand years here shows up one, two, three, four times in seven verses. It's a pretty well-emphasized point. And you know what I think that means? It's going to be a thousand years. A thousand years is a long time. You know, a thousand years ago, Vikings were roaming the earth. It's going to be a totally different place for an entire thousand years. Now, how certain is this? Can we be certain there's a millennium? Is this not just a spiritual indicator that something spiritual is going to happen? But let me just show you one Old Testament passage, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. And let me, look, let me start with the middle of verse 1. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that's the Galilee area. And afterward, more oppressed by her, is just talking about, you know, this is going to be something that's going to take place. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Has anybody ever heard that verse before? Who's that talking about? Jesus. And we know that verse from the New Testament because the Jews were saying... Who, whoever good ever comes out of Galilee? Well, look at, look at this verse in, in uh, Isaiah. The Messiah comes out of Galilee. And then it goes on and says, verse 3, You've multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden. The staff is his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor. See, you're going to be delivered from oppression, as in the day of Midian. 
I think that's probably referring to Gideon's deliverance. I think it was the Midianites that came up upon Israel there. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Does that sound familiar? Because we had this time period where we had to clean up and it took a ton of time to clean up from the battle and the blood ran to the chest of a horse. So there's going to be a massive battle. And then look at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Now, has this already happened, verse 6? For unto us a child is born, unto us the son is given. Has that happened? Was it spiritual or physical? It was physical, right? And has this happened, and the government will be upon his shoulder? Well, sort of. He is on the throne, and nothing happens without his permission. But is he here reigning on earth? Not yet. So is the first part certain and physical, but the second part is spiritual and uncertain? If he's going to come once as a child and serve, and he's the king of the earth, does it make any sense that he wouldn't come a second time and set up his kingdom? The first one's kind of hard to believe. The second one is a no-brainer. Of course kings set up a kingdom. Uh, The fact that there's these huge interlude was a great mystery. And we're living in the middle of that mystery. But given that the first part's happened, it's a no-brainer that the second part will happen. And there's going to be a physical thousand-year reign on this earth. There's no doubt about it. Now the question becomes, I saw thrones and they sat on them. And judgment was committed to them. So who is them? Well, in this passage here, we see part of the answer in the next sentence. Then I saw the souls, pusuke, the lives of those who had been beheaded. Now, as an aside, this term souls being pasuke, lives, is very encouraging to me. Because you can go through and anywhere you see soul, you can substitute in life. It means you as a person, you as an individual, your personality. This is very encouraging to me. There's not any sort of a change in who I am in the sense of me as an individual. The change is in the housing that I'm in and the station that I'm in. I'm ready for a new house. Mine's falling apart. My body's starting to deteriorate, and I'd like to have a new one. So that part I look forward to. But I'm really glad I get to still be me, and that's going to be us. And who is going to sit on this throne? Well, part is those who have been beheaded for the witness of Jesus. Witness. Remember the Greek word that's witness? Martyreo. These particular witnesses are what we call in English martyrs because they lost their lives. They were beheaded. So apparently beheading is going to become extremely widespread. We can see that starting a little bit in our world. Beheading's making a big comeback. We could be right on the doorstep. We, we don't know. So then the question is, is that all who's sitting on the throne? I'm going to say, no, that's not all who's sitting on the throne. I'm going to show you some verses where I'm going to advocate that there's other people sitting on the throne during the millennial kingdom. Let's look at Matthew 19, verse 28. Matthew 19, verse 28. Let's start in verse 27. Then Peter, the spokesman, answered and said to him, Jesus, and this is after they're doing the rich man can't go through the eye of the needle, and Peter's responding that. And he says, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Now, don't you love Peter? I do. I just love Peter. He speaks on behalf of me. Because this is what we all want to know. What's in it for me. You know, we try to pretend like we don't seek our own best interest. Look, this is the way this works. We're designed in such a way where we can't not seek our own best interest. Well, let me restate that. 
we can't not seek what we perceive to be in our own best interest. The point of renewing the mind is to get God's perspective so we can actually seek what's in our best interest instead of what we think's in our best interest but is actually in our own destruction. And Peter's not shy about that. He says, well, we left everything to follow you. What do we get? And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, the millennial kingdom, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, sits on the throne of his glory, his glory as the king of the earth, as the king of humanity, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's what you get, Peter. But don't get above your raisin because it's not just you, verse 29. Everyone who's left houses or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Eternal life is a gift and a reward. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So I'm going to give you a tremendous reward. But you know what? I might give somebody who is really puny in the eyes of man just as great a reward. So this would indicate to me that at least the 12 disciples are included. And I'm 100% confident they're not going to be beheaded because they already got martyred once. They've already been martyred. So they're included. But is it only them? Is it only them? I, I don't think so. I don't think so because he said in that, in that passage in 1927, he says, it's not just you. I'm going to include Everyone who suffered for my sake. And again, what's one of the main takeaways from Revelation? One of the main takeaways from Revelation is, if you will be a faithful witness, I'll make it worth your while. I'll make it worth your while. This teaching will continue in the following episode. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowballoons.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net. Thanks for listening.